1: Rate with service on the Visible Plan. For additional terms and network management practices, see Visible.com.
2: If I asked you to imagine the stereotypical philosopher, there's a decent chance Socrates is the figure that springs to mind. Which makes plenty of sense. Socrates is arguably the founder of the entire tradition of Western philosophy. And you probably know at least one thing Socrates said. An unexamined life is not worth living. And Socrates truly lived this principle. He was famous in Athens for his devotion to truth and to figuring out what it means to live a good life. And he did that by roaming around the city and engaging anyone he could in conversations about justice and law and the nature of wisdom. Philosophy wasn't just a way of life for Socrates. It was something best done with other people. This is why he was so committed to dialogue and public inquiry. But his commitment to raising questions and more importantly, challenging conventional wisdom made Socrates a target of the political class in Athens. And he was eventually killed for his questioning. We live in a very different world today, but the role of the philosopher isn't all that different. The point of philosophy is still, and hopefully will always be, to ask difficult questions, whatever the answers. And if you do that long enough, and if you do it in public, then there's a decent chance you're going to create a little controversy. I'm Sean Elling, and this is The Gray Area. My guest today is Agnes Callard. She's a professor at the University of Chicago, specializing in ancient philosophy and ethics. She's also written several academic and news articles, and she has an upcoming book on, you guessed it, Socrates. Callard is one of our most well-known public philosophers. She writes in various mainstream publications, and she's willing to talk to almost anyone about almost anything especially if it's in front of an audience. She recently garnered a ton of attention due to an article Rachel Aviv wrote about her in The New Yorker. The profile centers around her unconventional relationships with her ex-husband and current husband, both of whom are colleagues. It's a fascinating read for lots of reasons, but it's really an example of Callard's willingness to think publicly and not be afraid of the reaction. I appreciate that and it's one of the reasons I wanted to have her on the show. And we definitely talked about that article, but I started by asking her about her philosophical role model, Socrates, and how his influence shapes her approach to public philosophy.
0: I think that Socrates' most important legacy was that he discovered a kind of thinking that you could do by talking. And I think that many of us think that we're thinking more than we actually are thinking. That's one of the things he tried to point out to people who talked to. He would ask them a question, and they would say, Oh, that's easy. That's no problem. I'm going to be able to answer that in a second, Socrates. No problem, Socrates. And then they'd sort of try to say it. And they would almost be shocked by the words coming out of their own mouth, by how inadequate they were. They were like, Wait, I thought I was good at this. I thought I knew. I thought I had something in my head. So Socrates quite generally kind of demonstrated that what people have in their heads isn't very good, and it probably shouldn't be glorified with the label of thinking, but especially on certain kinds of questions, the questions that are most important to them. But that thinking about those questions was possible. It is a thing you can do. It's just not a thing you can do by yourself.
2: So when people think they're thinking, but they're not actually thinking, what are they doing? Just parroting conventions and and arguments and assumptions without having examined them or considered them themselves?
0: So, I think a good frame for thinking about it is daydreaming. So, when you're daydreaming, lots of thoughts are going through your head in no particular order, and you will often reverse the very thing you thought a moment earlier. There's very little demands of consistency on daydreaming. So, a way to think about what Socrates is saying is that more of our thinking is like daydreaming than we think. And if you want to know what are the inputs into daydreaming, yeah, the stuff you just said. Stuff other people say, basically.
2: Is the Socratic approach, is it really your approach as someone who sort of follows in his lead that, I'm not sure lonely is the right word, but did he believe, do you believe that we really are at sea, intellectually and maybe even spiritually, when we're alone? Right? And that the only way for us to really know anything, to be sure that we know anything, is to interrogate the world with other people. And without that, we can't really know anything. Not really.
0: So, I think Socrates saw that social inquisitive process as how we come to know things. But I think he thought if you actually knew, you could hold on to it. So you wouldn't need to be conversing in order to hold on to it. Moreover, I think he thinks that he is able to hold on to things that he has arrived at in conversation. And he often lists those in his conversations. So there's some kind of conceit about Socrates that like all of his dialogues end in aporia, in like having made no progress. And That's just not true. And in fact, quite often he'll just like list, like in the Gorgias, he lists like a bunch of claims like, here's the progress we made. These claims are tied down with iron and adamant. And I think that those are not just meant to be the claims that are established by way of that conversation, but they have also been established for Socrates in other conversations. So I think Socrates thinks that as you talk to people, you make progress and you get better at talking to people by talking to people because you are able to spot which are the claims that you're easily going to be able to brush away because you've a thousand times been down this road before and which is like new territory. So yes, he thought that the inquisitive process was social, but it doesn't follow that the gains of the inquisitive process can only be experienced if another person is present.
2: He does seem to have um, a kind of mania for truth. And I know mania is a loaded term, but what I mean is that his only real concern is this commitment to... Believing things that are true and not believing things that are not true. <laughs> whatever the cost, and of course, you know, he ends up dying or being killed in part for his project. Is that commitment to truth, whatever the cost, something that you have really strived to emulate, not just in your in your work, but your broader life as well?
0: Yes, absolutely. And I would say that there's something even more, there's like... Oh. something to add to it's being a commitment to the truth. It's a commitment to truths that you don't yet know. Take Galileo being questioned, and is he going to say the earth moves or not, right? You could say that's a question about the commitment to truth. But there, it's like one way or the other, Galileo knows which way it goes, right? It's just a question, what does he say out loud? And so that's one kind of commitment to truth. But the the truths that Socrates was committed to were truths that he didn't yet know. And that was more important to him than his own life. So that's, to me, that kind of inquisitive attitude, a serious attitude of inquiry where the most important truths are yet to be found. Yes, that is what I strive to emulate.
2: Given all of that, I assume you think it's impossible to be a philosopher without also questioning authority. Is that right?
0: I mean, Socrates, you know, the way that he approached the authoritative individuals that he talked to, and he didn't only talk to authoritative individuals, but he did— also, talk to authoritative individuals.
2: Right, right.
0: Is he was like, I'm so excited to learn all your wisdom, Hippias. Please explain to me. I have this little question about the speech you just gave. You know, let me. Ex- can you explain it to me? And you know, my view is that he was being sincere there. That he was questioning authority from the point of view of expecting that the authority would have a way of explaining itself, and that that conversation would leave somewhere. And that's how I see it, too, that questioning authority isn't a fundamentally destructive motivation. It's an inquisitive motivation. It's like, let's find the answer. I think you're the right person to be inquiring with. The moral of the story of Socrates's life as being that philosophy was dangerous was the one that Socrates tried hardest to push against, you know, in the final, and Plato did in these final dialogues, where Socrates is like, "Look, nothing bad's happening to me. I'm just my body's being destroyed, so what? I'm old." The dangerous thing is not doing philosophy from his point of view, right? That's the dangerous thing from your soul. The thought that you could go through your whole life and never think about what kind of life you want to live. That's dangerous. Just being killed? You don't even know what happens next after you're killed. Maybe it's bad. Maybe it's good. You probably haven't thought about that question. That's probably another good one to think about.
2: So my impression of you is that you're someone who takes public philosophy in in uncommonly serious way. And I mean that as a high compliment. And it's not surprising, therefore, that Socrates is your you know, philosophical light. He was known as a person who lived his philosophy in a very public way. And you're doing something similar, and that's what I want to explore. I mean, do you see your your own life, your private and your public life, as a kind of testing ground for your ideas about life and how to live it? I mean, is that how you think of what you're doing.
0: Yeah, I think that something I experience regularly with any philosophical question is asking myself a meta question of like, do I actually mean this question? Am I really asking it? Do I really want to know? And like I, I don't know why, but I was writing something today and I happened to think back on um, this time when I I was in junior high school and my mom came home from work early. And she was normally home late, and I was normally left to my own devices, and I would come home—I myself would come home late. I would read a book on my way home from school. Like, every day, I'd just read another book. And I'd walk home really slow and read the book. And I was home late, and she was like, what were you doing? Where were you? And I was reading a book like I did every day. And she starts asking me about my homework and about, you know, well, do you have any tests coming up? Do you need to be doing this? And— I was like, what, you're going to start parenting me today? Like, (laughs) you know, I've been figuring this out. I'm in junior high school. Like, I've been doing, figuring out my own homework stuff, making these decisions for myself. You can't today walk in here and start now, like, trying to, take hold of my life. Well, I often feel that way about philosophy, that with philosophy, we ask ourselves, how should I live? How should I live my life? How should I conduct my romances? How should I be a parent? How should I? And, but like, we've already been doing those things for a while. There's an ingrained way that they're going. And there's this question, what would it take for the question to really get a grip so that you are prepared to just, you know, erase your life and start over if it was the wrong one. So that, to me, is really pressing and somehow doing more public philosophy in a very big variety of ways was helpful to me in feeling the aliveness of a bunch of questions, in making me feel like I really was asking them.
2: Well, the collapse of public and private life is a good bridge to the topic of marriage. You know, you (laughs) you made a bunch of headlines recently, as I'm sure you know, after being profiled in The New Yorker. and, And the piece was about your marriages and how you've experimented with different family arrangements. And so for people who haven't read the profile and you should if you're even a little bit interested in it. It's well done. But you know, so you were married, you got divorced, it was a very happy consensual divorce. You then married a, a doctoral student that you fell in love with and I think he's now also an academic philosopher and you managed to create this arrangement where you're still very close with your ex-husband and he's close with your current husband. Your, your kids are all fully aware of the situation and it, It's kind of this big, unconventional family. I'm really only interested in this to the extent that it's a demonstration of you trying to live your philosophy. That profile was obviously very personal, and you're extremely transparent about your life in it. Why did you want to do that? You could be a public philosopher without opening yourself up quite like that. So why do it? What's the Socratic project behind it?
0: Yeah, I mean, the way that my husband Arnold put it at one point when I was talking to him about it that I liked, which was, you should always be happy for the truth about you to be told. So the profile is probably not the profile of myself I would have written had I written a profile of myself.
2: It never is.
0: (laughs) Those weren't, you know, the questions that Rachel Aviv had were not necessarily the questions I would pose to myself, but I thought they were interesting questions. So I guess for me, the criterion was, are these interesting questions, are they worth answering? And I could well imagine many other questions that would also be interesting and worth answering. But these definitely met that bar. And I suppose, I think a big part of my willingness to do it was just my own sense of the seriousness with which she was pursuing the inquiry. Like I could tell from the way she asked follow-up questions that she was really trying to understand. And that's a gift to anyone, for someone to really try hard to understand you.
2: What kinds of questions do you think weren't asked that you wish were?
0: I guess I think that all of my friends and family members, they're like, but what about this about you? What about this? (laughs) They were the reviewer too uh, of all the things about me that were in the piece. (laughs) And um, one that, is just sticking in my mind, they were like, she didn't get it. What is your public philosophy project? What is this thing that you're doing? This public philosophy revolution or something that you're trying to start? Like, Why Why are you doing that? What is the point of it? What is the goal of it? That didn't come up in the piece because that's not what that piece was about. But I do think that would be another interesting piece to write.
2: Well, that's what I want to tease out. I hope we can, we can tease out because I think you have some really interesting ideas about marriage and love really. And to the extent I understand your project, I think by raising these questions in public, you're forcing a conversation that otherwise isn't had. And and that's a good thing. I don't know how you felt about marriage as an institution before all this, but did you come to the conclusion at some point that the way we do it in this culture is just wrong or broken or or too limited or something else?
0: Let me make a meta point about the thought that something in the way of our, our culture is broken. I am, I tend to be suspicious of claims of that general kind just because I think we are all products of our cultures to so deeply that the criticism wouldn't make any sense. Like, I am my culture. <laughs> if our marriage culture is broken, I'm broken because I'm a product of that culture. I think I can get away from it a little bit. You can push a little bit. You're not fully 100% a product of your culture, but you're like, 90 to 95%. And so cultural critique is not, I think, is not as possible as many people think it is. Other cultures, we can look at them and get a distance on them, but we a little bit have the illusion of being able to get a distance in our culture. So I think it's not so much that I thought that um, the way we do marriage is wrong. It's more like I thought, oh, the way we are doing marriage actually has this opening has an opening. Here's a thing I can do. Here's a thing that's available to me. It's like an opening that maybe nobody noticed until now, but it's lying right there, available to anyone, really. What's the opening? I mean, it's probably more than one, actually. But the first one was that there was no reason why I couldn't stay friends with Ben.
2: He's your ex-husband. Yeah, yeah my ex-husband. Quiet. Yes, and then,
0: yeah, yes. Yeah. And then once that opening, once it was obvious to me that that was there, and you know what? Maybe there was another one. It was like, our decision to get divorced was a collaborative decision, even though I was the one coming to Ben and being like, I've fallen in love with someone else. I think we need to get divorced. You know, his initial response was like, no, we should go into therapy. And I was like, okay, let's do that. Let's go to therapy. And then the next day he's like, no, actually, I see your point. We should get divorced. And so the fact that that was like, it was a collaborative decision, even though I was the one bringing the kind of motivation to it, that to me was a new possibility. And then being able to stay friends with Ben. And then the fact that Ben and Arnold became friends, I was like, oh, there's just a lot more degrees of freedom than we've noticed. And then we got along well enough that it seemed like something on the table that we could all live together. And so then we did that. So it's like there is all there are all these moves you can make that... Maybe many people haven't noticed, though it's not true that nobody's noticed. I've I've got lots of emails because of this piece, and there's people who've written to me are like, yeah, we did the same thing. Not bad. <laughs> right? So it's but, uh... not totally unheard of, but it's just uncommon.
2: When it comes to love and romance, what should we expect from our significant other? And what do we owe them in return? that's coming up after a quick break.
1: Hi, we're visible. We're the wireless company with nothing to hide. Seriously, hidden fees? We don't have them. Annual contracts? Not our thing. Great wireless on just one line? Now that's more like it. Get unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon for just $25 a month. Taxes and fees included. That's right, 25 a month every month. Sorry, hidden fees. We're just not that into you. Sometimes the choice is just visible. Switch today at visible.com. Rate with service on the Visible plan. For additional terms and network management practices, see visible.com.
3: Support for this podcast comes from Constant Contact. If you're a business owner, you already know that it's really, really hard to cut through the noise of everyday life. If you want to connect with your customers, you need to break through the noise.
2: there's a difficult truth about marriage maybe that we don't really talk about all that much because it undercuts some of our myths and this was a i don't know if it's a big part but certainly it was a part of that new yorker profile we meet someone we fall in love there's this passion and intensity and you know you you see someone really and they see you and it's 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 all very intoxicating but that Feeling starts to fade after a while, and the rest of the relationship becomes this attempt to hold on to an ideal that was n- never really sustainable, not with your partner and not with anyone else. It's just not sustainable i mean do you do you think that we expect too much from our relationships? Is it unfair or unreasonable to expect one person to be enough for anyone?
0: Well, I think that. The question, do we expect too much, and the question, expecting one person to be enough, seems separate to me. So I think we don't expect enough is our problem. So as you might not be surprised to hear, I'm a Socratic about (laughs) romance and romantic relationships, and Socrates' theory of romance is that the way that we behave, and here I really mean specifically romance, so like that initial period where, you know, you feel like your life is transformed, etc., The way that we behave in connection with romance is, he uses the Greek word mania, mania. It's like we're crazy. We become crazy. This kind of craziness, nobody actually thinks, oh, the person should be institutionalized or they need to get help. We think, oh, yeah, of course. I mean, they're in love. So that's normal. We've decided that crazy is normal in a certain kind of context. And just to show you... How twisted that is, we could just substitute another kind of motivation for romance. Like if, say the thing that people do where they broke up with someone, but they keep calling their ex. And they keep texting them, and they hate this person now. like and, and they don't want to get back together with them, but they can't stop themselves texting them. Totally familiar phenomenon, right? Texting your ex when you shouldn't, and all your friends tell you you shouldn't. Imagine somebody did that with just with a restaurant. Like, they wanted to go to a certain restaurant, and the restaurant's closed. So they stand outside the door of the restaurant, and they're banging on the door of the restaurant. And you walk up to them, and you're like, you know, this one's closed. There's all these other open ones. Do you want to go to one? No, I can only go to this one. Is it because the food is so good? No, I hate the food. If somebody did that with respect to food, we'd be like, there's something wrong with you. You need help. But when we do it about romance, we're like, yeah, that's how it goes. Okay, so Socrates thinks this needs interpretation. We need a theory of why it is that we're crazy, that this certain kind of craziness uh, starts to take over us. And his theory is that it's a sign that we didn't come from this place, this place that we're in now. We're here, but our home isn't like another world. And in that other world, the rules are different. And in that other world, there's things that are perfect, like perfectly beautiful. But of course, the other person, the person, the, the sort of maybe fortunate, maybe unfortunate person in whom you've gotten this glimpse of perfection isn't themselves perfect. And so what is it to hold on to that glimpse of perfection? And I think Socrates thought that what it is to hold on to it is to try to reconcile yourself to the thought that it's not actually in that person, but that that person could be a way of getting at it together with you.
2: I'm not sure what to do with that. You know, there's, you'll love this. So I I had an excerpt from Plato's Symposium read at my wedding. And it was the famous speech from Aristophanes. And Aristophanes is this like comic figure. But in the symposium, as you know, he's being super serious about love. And he has this idea that at some point in our past, each pair of lovers were one whole and we were separated. And our great quest is to find that person again and reunite. And that's obviously not true, but it is beautiful. It's a beautiful idea. And while I still think that speech is is fantastic, I'm not sure it's the right way to think about love anymore. It sounds a lot like this notion that like the person you love should should complete you or help you complete yourself, which sounds a little bit like what you're saying, unless I'm wrong about that.
0: Um, so the way the symposium is structured is there's a bunch of speeches, and then there's Socrates' speech and then Alcibiades' speech. So Socrates makes reference to exactly one speech over the course of his speech besides for the conversation with Agathon, where he talks about Agathon. But he basically, he goes back and he's like, says that somebody was wrong. The one person who comes in for that treatment is Aristophanes. So Socrates says, remember when uh, I once heard a story about how lovers love their other half. He doesn't name Aristophanes. It's like a subtweet. I once heard a story about how lovers love their other half. That story is wrong. That's not what love is. So Socrates explicitly comes out against Aristophanes, and he says, Aristophanes is wrong, and that's not what I'm saying. Don't interpret my speech as saying the same thing as Aristophanes' speech. Why? Well, because Aristophanes' speech suggests that all you got to do is find your other half, and then that's it. You're complete. And I think Socrates would say you've confused the beginning of the story for the end of the story.
2: But that, that feeling that you get, right? I mean, I mean, I think you talked about this in a piece, right? With that, with your first husband, when, when you guys decided to get divorced, you no longer felt that. And you even talk about not even feeling that anymore with your current husband, right? I mean, is that, is that ever sustainable? If it isn't, Doesn't it seem like every relationship is going to have a short shelf life? Because that doesn't last. It cannot last. And if every time it goes away, you run for the hills, that's going to be a problem, right?
0: So think about how you feel. There's certain feelings like when you first arrive at campus on your first day of classes or when your kid is born and you see them for your first time. There are these kind of transformative moments that can't last. And romance just gives us a big, a strong version of that, I think. So I think it's right that the kind of experience, that sudden experience of everything being possible, it doesn't last. But I don't think that that's the same thing as saying it's not sustainable. The feeling isn't sustainable. That kind of excitement and the emotional, the feeling of emotional heightening and the feeling that everything in your life is centering around this one thing. Like nothing else is really that important. This is the most, all of that, Right. Kind of dissipates over time. But I think that hopefully it doesn't dissipate so quickly as for you to try to like grab on to what is going to be this project that you're going to engage in with this person. Because that, I I see that like opening window of like falling in love as kind of like your chance to hook on to it. And in a way, that experience has to go away, right? Because that experience is the Aristophanic experience. It's the experience of this person completes me. I found my other half. I'm done. It's the experience of being done, in a way. And in order to have the other experience of like just getting started, that has to somewhat fade.
2: Right. If I'm understanding it on the Socratic model, right? I mean, like a a good life is this attempt, among other things, to get closer to our ideals. And when someone enters our life and helps us in that, that aspiration or that climb, that's love and that's great. And maybe when someone doesn't do that for us anymore or, or we don't do that for them, maybe that's the time to part ways. And that doesn't necessarily make your marriage of a failure or anyone's marriage a failure. But it, let me push back a little bit on this, if you don't mind. And I want to see what you, what you think. Mm-hmm, absolutely you poke fun at your own selfishness in that New Yorker profile. And I wonder if you think it's possible that this is too self-centered a way of thinking about marriage and family and maybe even life itself, right? Like, again, I'm talking to myself here, I think as much as anyone, but like maybe the point of these experiences is precisely to give ourselves over to other people, to care less about ourselves. And in that sense, the very thing that feels so burdensome. So freedom constricting is precisely the thing we need to transcend ourselves and our own selfish desires.
0: There's bad kinds of selfishness. Let's say there's a narrow kind of selfishness that is born from an impoverished sense of what yourself is. But there's bad kinds of selflessness that are just born from conformity and a narrow set of expectations as to what other people want. <laughs> so... I think that what's enticing about another person in the context of love and also in some other kinds of philosophical context is that they bring out possibilities for yourself that you didn't know were there before. And so the thought that you were being selfish, it's a new kind of selfishness that has only just recently become possible. If we say that, then I'm like, yeah, I think it is that. In that sense, it can also be selfless because it's also—I mean—that is, it's also directed towards their self. But there are many forms of selflessness that are very unromantic and that people don't really want from us. So I think it—I think that it is a bit selfish. But as long as it's a kind of enlightened selfishness, I'm okay with that. And at that point, I'm not sure. I'm not sure that it is so different from at least one kind of selflessness.
2: Let me try to get at this another way. I think there's maybe a sense in which the sort of approach we're talking about to love is is heavily focused on the passions, right? Or what you might call eros, right? You've written about that. And that's all good. But I think what I was pushing for a minute ago was was like what what role is there in this model of love and marriage for sacrifice? Like what role is there for the other? And I don't mean the other merely as a vehicle for our own philosophical growth, but the other for the sake of the other, right? Like, it is true that there are parts of life, often like, like marriage and, and, you know, raising kids that are boring and hard and conventional, but maybe there's also value and goodness in those things. And if we live entirely or too much for ourselves following our own passions, then I think sometimes we can end up bulldozing over the lives of the people we love. Like, I know what you're talking about. I think we all do when you talk about the honeymoon phase of a relationship ending. It happens to all of us, and it's a bummer. (laughs) But there are higher and deeper forms of love, right, that come after that. And like I was saying earlier, if someone bails on a relationship every time that obsessive passion starts to fade away then I'm not sure what space there is for long-term relationships at all, right? It would just everything, they would all be transitory because you, you would be sort of perpetually chasing after that, that mania <laughs> that comes with that initial, you know, the fireworks of romance in the beginning.
0: Like, y- yes, I think that um, love typically involves something usually known as sacrifice. So that is, it involves unpleasantness, right? It's a package deal, and part of the package is suffering. And that's certainly true of of parenting, and it's true of romantic love, and it's true of just about every attachment that you have to another human being is that it comes with suffering. So maybe you're right that that initial stage of the relationship has less suffering in it than the later stages that's only sometimes true i think sometimes it has quite a lot of suffering in it but i think that on the whole i guess the reason to stick with it and to continue is the good things that are to be gotten for you like and i want to be with someone where they're they're seeing that they're getting incredible value out of this relationship and the thought that they're fundamentally to sacrifice that it's a net sacrifice you know that's just a form of unhappiness
2: I think you said earlier that in your case, I asked you if you think we expect too much from our lovers or if we expect too much from our partners, and you said that we don't expect enough. What should we be expecting of, of our lovers then that we don't, but should?
0: So if I would put it in the, the most, the strongest terms, when you fall in love with someone, you see something divine in them. And the expectation would just be that that gets realized. Because the thing you see is only a possibility. And that they have the same expectation of you. Now, I want to, at this point, that acknowledge something, which is like one reaction that this piece got from a lot of people is like, wow, she seems really exhausting. <laughs> and I think that that's sort of true about me. And maybe there's just different modes of living. One thing I think philosophers are insufficiently sensitive to is the fact that people are different from other people. There's just a huge amount of variance among human beings. There's some exceptions. But most philosophers, they kind of think it's like one size fits all. And I am inclined in that direction as well. But I do think maybe there are... Maybe there's one way to think about two. There's two kinds of people. Some people think the worst thing in life is stress and suffering and the world making too many demands of you. And then other people thinking the worst thing in life is like boredom and nothingness and having an insufficient number of demands being made on you. I am definitely in the second category. I just always want there to be more. Um, I want everything to be happening faster. And... So, I mean, I guess the question is, which danger are you more worried about? The thought that failing at this really big task is going to be so dispiriting that you'll just, like, give up and won't try at all? Or the thought that not putting a big enough task in front of you is just going to leave you demotivated and think, ah, is this even worth trying at? Emma? What I'm saying is I'm just more in the second category. So, like, just because something is, like, an infinitely large task, I don't think that that means that it's too big to ask of someone. But keep in mind, I don't have to persuade everyone. (laughs) Like, I just got to persuade, like, one person, the person I'm with, right? And so if most people are like, hey, that's not for me, that's okay, because I'm not romantically involved with them.
2: Is romance the key to making philosophy mainstream? That's coming up after one more quick break.
4: Support for this show comes from Slack. grow your business in Slack. Visit slack.com to get started. Support for this show comes from Sylvan Learning. As a parent, you want your child to have every opportunity, but giving them the tools they need to tackle every challenge, that takes a team. Now more than ever, educational support tailored exactly to what your child needs can make all the difference.
2: of socrates i think of someone who's just poking holes in what we think we know and i i guess i wonder what you think we need most from philosophers today what other kinds of questions should they be asking right now i mean a lot of what we've been talking about is i mean marriage is a, is a very personal thing right but it's also a social institution and to the extent that you're questioning it publicly we're sort of doing that work of of asking well What is this thing we we call marriage, and what sense does it actually make, and what role does it actually occupy in our lives, and what should we expect of the people we, we marry, and on and on and on? What other sorts of questioning do you think we should be doing right now, or philosophers in particular?
0: So, first I want to say, I would agree with the description of Socrates as poking holes and things, but the way that I would put that is that he's opening a bunch of inquiries, right? So he's sort of saying hey, here's a bunch of stuff you're just sort of doing. You're just sort of going through your day with it, but you could ask about it. And one of the really transformative moments in my life was in thinking about colors and shapes. When I was like an undergraduate, I took a class on Plato's Mino, and in the Mino, there's just this line, Socrates gives a definition of shape. And he says, shape is that alone of all existing things that always follows color. And it's a weird definition, and first I thought that's a terrible definition. I mean, because it's like weirdly sort of two-dimensional. And then what if you don't know what color is? But there was sort of a moment at which I started to like look around the room and realize that all of the shapes were color patches. That all of the shape boundaries were color boundaries. And like it was just a new two-dimensional way of being able to see like literally see the world around me. And if I move my head slightly, the shapes slightly change because the way the colors are arranged change. That we see shape because we see color. We first see color, and then because we see color, we see shape. And this was like this insight where I had never thought I could even ask a question about how do I see shape. There was no question for me. I had just always been able to see shapes ever since I was a little kid. So, My thought is philosophy can do that for you. It can show you that there's a question to be asked and it can show you, it can make room for intellectual inquiry where you didn't think there was any room. Now, I think the really interesting thing about marriage and romance is just that it's a place where we will tolerate this. Um, because we are all interested in having philosophical discussions about our romantic lives. And I never realized this so strongly until I started, until this piece came out, where, you know, I've had people report on me and describe me as someone most of whose work is about romance or my own romances or whatever. And this is a small, none of my academic work is about this and very little of my public philosophy is about this, but people have this impression that's who I am, right? Why? Because it's gripping. It's really gripping to people. And, I think this might be the thin edge of the philosophical wedge. If we philosophers want to get people to be interested in their own lives, the place we got to start is romance and marriage because they will tolerate it there. People will have long, involved conversations about ideas if those conversations are about romance.
2: The philosophers have always talked about being oriented to the highest good or being committed to to the truth above all else. Certainly, you know, our friend Socrates fits that description. But there's always been this alternative view. And you can see it in someone like nietzsche who we, we did an episode on recently. And the view is is basically that perhaps philosophers have spent too much time thinking the great aim of life is to know when maybe it's better to just experience life. And I don't think the point is that pursuing truth and experiencing life are incompatible projects. It's more about our orientation to the world, right? I mean, this is why Nietzsche hated Plato and Socrates, right? Because I, he thought the pursuit of ultimate truth eventually ends in a ditch, and maybe for that reason, the point of human life should be to create our own values, our own truth, and work to affirm it in our in our art and in our ways of life. And you know, I don't, I'm not sure how much I buy all that, but it's a strain of thought I can't quite let go of, and it's potentially a terminal critique of of your boy, our boy, Socrates.
0: Yeah. So. I think that when people say philosophers spend too much time trying to know, those people usually think that they know a bunch of stuff. That is, the contrast to trying to know isn't just experiencing, it's thinking you already know. Those are the only two options. Either you think you already know or you're trying to know. And... Nietzsche thinks he knows a bunch of stuff.
2: Yes, he does. He
0: has is kind of filled with his own wisdom. And he's not even always sure what that wisdom is, but he's sure it's there. And it's inspiring and it makes him riveting to read. But when you actually try to cash it out and be like, okay, what were his ideas? What kind of life was he promoting? It's, it's really hard. It's really hard to make Nietzsche systematic. He had these sort of flashes of insight, but he didn't think it through well enough. I think part of why Nietzsche didn't think through his ideas is because he didn't sufficiently see the need to inquire and figure stuff out. He was he was a genius. I mean, Nietzsche was somebody who, from a very young age, he was smarter than everyone around him, and he was just good at thinking, right? And uh, had an artistic temperament. And he saw something as the end point that I think should have been the beginning point. But this idea of like we should just experience experience life. What is that? Like what is experiencing life? It seems to me that whenever we have any experience, we have to have some principle for what we are paying attention to in the experience. Right now, you're having an experience, right? Where there's all kinds of visual information around you and there's visual information on your screen. You're paying attention to your screen and to your audio, auditory information coming from me You're processing it into words. All of that is the experience you're having. Why? Because there's a goal you have, right? Of understanding what I'm saying, of pursuing this conversation. That's how you're having the experience. If you didn't have any of that, you wouldn't even be having an experience. There has to be something that gives order order to experience. The most persuasive person to argue for that claim was Kant, who Nietzsche also hated. <laughs>
2: he hated everyone, for what it's worth, except Schopenhauer and a few others. But
0: Yeah, so he was into Schopenhauer, and he ignores Aristotle to a degree that's fascinating. He's obsessed with Socrates. I mean, it's not just he hates Socrates, he talks about it all the time, right? So it's the kind of, you know, you, you can't but think of Nietzsche and Ressentiment when you see Nietzsche just talking obsessively about Socrates. But I think that like yes, obviously the point is to experience life, but the question is how do you experience it? How do you take in the right sorts of experiences? And the Socratic answer is by being inquisitive.
2: You know, I, I know you you, you argue in, in a recent piece for the Atlantic that we shouldn't strive for profundity all the time, especially when we're talking to each other, because real dialogue, again going back to Socrates, is something that happens when you can set aside what you think you know. And and I feel like this colors the way you communicate your ideas in conversations like this, and. What I appreciate is that you don't seem to be trying to sound deep or profound, which isn't to say you don't say deep or profound things. What I mean is that you seem to want to show the messiness of thinking in real time. And I think a lot of people who do what we do for a living don't do that because (laughs) the messiness can be perceived as um, a lack of profundity or or, or whatever the case may be. And and you, you seem to... You seem to lean into that in a way that um, I think makes you uh, exceptional.
0: Thank you. But in fact, it's not a desire to show anything. It just goes back to that selfishness thing. I literally am thinking. So thinking actually is messy. And so if I'm actually doing it, it's just going to be transparent. And there's a way in which suppose that I somehow had like the audience more in mind and I'm like, thinking to myself what opinions about philosophers will they have from listening to me and which opinions should i be trying to produce in them for the sake of their souls i think maybe a lot of people are asking themselves those sorts of questions and that's why they have multiple faces so they have like the face that they put forward when they're trying to achieve a certain sort of result with with a certain audience and maybe in that way they're just more selfless than i am and I never have the mental energy for that because someone asked me a question. I'm just thinking about that question and what the answer is and whether there's something interesting about that question. And that occupies all of my attention. So nothing is left over for the part where I would make the presentation of it better.
2: Is it right that you're gonna you're working on a book or you're going to write a book about marriage? Is that coming?
0: I am planning to write a book. I'm right now finishing a book about Socrates. So it's like a little hard for myself to jump ahead. But I do that is the next book I want to write uh is a book about marriage yes marriage and divorce and probably centered on uh Ingmar Bergman's scenes from a marriage
2: did the reception and i know you said this you don't you don't really give a shit about um you know people chirping on twitter about about this or that but did, because again relationships and marriages is such a personal thing right That people are, are involved in in their own ways in their own lives and when you touch something like that or when you start poking holes in something like that it Provokes a lot of feelings, right? People are, you know, is there a lesson in sort of the nerve you hit upon when you sort of explored those sorts of things publicly? And I assume that that if you did that, that must inform not only how you're thinking, but how you're gonna you're gonna write about this in the future.
0: I was very shocked by the degree of reaction to the profile, and I almost feel as though there was so much reaction that it's a bit hard to. Uh, it's a bit hard to learn from. (laughs) So I, I'm not sure what I, like I, there was a lot of criticism that I felt disappointed by and that I would have liked to learn something from it, but it, I didn't think there was so much to learn from it. And maybe, maybe there's like a thing where when you touch a nerve, it's like you become a Rorschach test. Right. So, like, there's just all this projection happening where the stuff that people were saying was coming more from like where they were in their lives than anything about me. And there was so much of it that it just didn't get organized into anything. And so I found it hard. I found it hard to take something away from it. I mean, the two, you know, I sort of like, I wrote this piece about profundity because that was one interesting point. People were saying, she's not profound, she's shallow. And I was like, that's interesting. That's an interesting question. I I could get engaged by that question. But there wasn't so much along those lines where I could even get engaged by the question.
2: Yeah, well, you know, something that you say in that piece about profundity that will probably annoy a lot of people who do this for a living. In part because I think a lot of us know that deep down it's, probably true. I think, I think many writers or public intellectuals or public philosophers, whatever, don't really want to think publicly because it is messy and it is risky. And the safer move, as you say, is to you know devote their verbal gifts to dressing up old ideas in new clothing, I think is the way you put it. Because that's often what the audience really wants, to feel smart and and right. Obviously not not this audience, obviously other other audiences. And that's fine as far as it goes, but it's not philosophy, I don't think. And I think we need people out there poking around at our treasured conventions and forcing us to question things that seem unquestionable, even if it's a little dangerous. But I do appreciate that that you're out there doing the <laughs> The philosophizing and risking in the process sometimes kind of stepping in it um or or you know stepping on yourself as it were
0: yeah i think that it's not really possible to manage large groups of people that's not a thing one can do so it's good to get out of the habit of trying <laughs> um there's a kind of synergy of interactions where you know something will then get an extreme reaction and you can't control it I I guess I, I feel about the dangers of that kind of the way I felt about the dangers of, you know, philosophy for Socrates, which is like, there's a lot of dangers to not doing it. There's a lot of danger to, like okay, philosophy is like romance, which is like when you're in your whatever, late teens, early 20s, it's this exciting thing where you're going to figure out the meaning of life. And like you stay up late in your dorm room and you have these long conversations and you think that everything about your life is going to be an immediate product of thought. And it's like this revelation. And then you major in philosophy and you go to grad school and you publish you get tenure and blah, 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 blah. blah. And before you know it, you've totally forgotten that you got into this because you wanted to understand the meaning of life, and that's a huge danger to lose hold of that. And that that danger really animates me; it really worries me. And I'd rather be ridiculous in public than lose hold of that original impulse.
2: All right, this was uh, a lot of fun. It was a pleasure to to finally catch up with you, Agnes Callard. Thanks for for coming in today. My pleasure. Patrick Boyd engineered this episode, Alex Overington wrote our theme music, and A.M. Hall is the boss. Well, there's so much going on in that conversation, I don't even know where to start, and I won't even try to sum it up. I'll just repeat what I said to Agnes. I really appreciate the way she goes about doing public philosophy. I think it's a good thing to have someone like her out there, unafraid. I'm here for it, and I'm glad she is too. Anyway, let us know what you think. Drop us a line at, the gray area at vox.com. And if you appreciated this episode, and of course you did, share it with all your friends on the socials. All that stuff really helps. It really, really does. New episodes drop on Mondays and Thursdays. Listen and subscribe.